The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, so we're here with Alana Cody again uh, to talk about uh, our interview with Past Lives. Uh, Take it away. Yes, we're releasing a lot of these really fast. Um, Hope you guys enjoy all these bonus episodes. Because it's Oscar season. Oscar season. We're almost there. (laughs) So we're we're racing ahead. You're getting lots of extra content right now. So I hope you like it. Content. Um, I said the C word. Anyway, uh, right now we're here to introduce our interview that we did with the cinematographer of the film, Past Lives. His name is Xavier Kirchner. And Xavier also shot the series on Amazon. It was called Small Acts, which was great. This was a few years ago. He worked with director Steve McQueen. So, nice. and Ilya conducted, Ilya did this interview. Ilya couldn't be here today. He is currently- Ilya's, we, we have like some cool uh, announcements of a guest host for uh, to, to fill in for Ilya pretty soon. We do. So. Ilya is away right now on work in London. Woo-woo. Fancy. Fancy pants. Yes. So we're filling in for his, um, introing his interview. Um, so Xavier shot Past Lives. Um, the director is a first-time director named Celine Song. And the film is also nominated for Best Picture and um, for Best Original Screenplay for Academy Awards. Um, Xavier talks about his experience working with Celine and working on the film. And it follows a woman who grew up for part of her childhood in South Korea. And then her relationship with living in the United States and reconnecting with a boy who she knew in South Korea and looking at their relationship and how it evolves and what it becomes later when they meet again as adults and uh, with new lives and relationships. So it's it's I liked the movie quite a bit. I I did really enjoy that. I hate to admit, but I'll admit it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) I've got so anyway. I I liked it. It's a quiet film and it unfolds in a really nice way. I think and I think the screenplay was great too. I really like watching their relationship and what it's like for people to kind of reconnect to you know or childhood crushes who then connect years later as adults. So that's basically what the film is about. So um, hope you can see Past Lives. It's worth your time. And uh, enjoy our interview with Xavier Kirchner. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Joining me now is Xavier Kirchner, who is the cinematographer for the incredible movie Past Lives, as well as Small Axe, a personal favorite of mine. And uh, we're going to get into talking about uh, both of those movies here in just a moment. But I'm just going to real quickly throw this out there. If you've not seen Past Lives or Small Axe, what's wrong with you? You need to get out and see these things right now. These these are two incredible examples of just fantastic cinematography. And I'm thrilled to be talking with Javier right now. So welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel like there's so many so many places to start this conversation. I, I almost don't know where to begin, but let's talk about Past Lives, because Past Lives is certainly in the zeitgeist right now. People are talking about it. It's uh, it's a very uh, measured 
an interesting movie that's been resonating with audiences, uh, you know, all over the world. It seems like it was probably a fairly difficult production, splitting, uh, you know, locations between New York and Korea. Uh, how did you and the director come together? How did the movie come together for you? Yeah, it was right after COVID. I had just finished uh, having a lot of downtime after Small Axe, and my agent, Grant, sent me the script. And much like a lot of instances with scripts, I just have like a really tough time reading scripts. Like it takes me a long time to get around to them. I'm super dyslexic. And it usually is like a daunting task. But I finally got around to it and breezed through it. Absolutely breezed through it. And it was really like, because I always try and find myself in the material as much as possible, because if I can identify with what's what's on the page personally, then that's like a point of entry for me, you know, and past lives just happened to not just be a standalone amazing script, but it was also like I found a lot of myself in the material and a lot of what I was going through presently, just being an immigrant you know, into the US, being from the Caribbean, reconnecting with a friend, falling in love, like all of that stuff was happening while I was reading the material. And it just felt like it was written for me. So that's how we we got into it. And I had an amazing first conversation where, you know, it was we just spoke about time and love and like how those two things, how love can really sort of influence time, the way we perceive time and the way that, you know, the plasticity and the malleable nature of it, how it can slow it down and speed it up and stretch it. And um, yeah, there was no doubt in my mind that Celine was like, I I didn't even, I had no idea that she had not made a film at that point. I was like, oh, this is, this must be like a veteran filmmaker. And so I did some research and found out that she had not made anything before with the camera she had she had written a lot for the stage of the theater but never made anything uh, for the screen and um, i was really blown away with just her as a person so yeah and so i said yes obviously let's do it <laughs> well it's a very amazing uh first effort from from any director out there i mean this the, the movie has been nominated for best original screenplay at the oscars let's talk about the nuts and the bolts about making uh past lives it's shot two separate continents two two different places i'm assuming two different crews you did not have probably have a crew that 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 or maybe only some keys that may have traveled back and forth uh tell me about the production of past lives yeah, well, we shot the film New York and Korea. We did the New York portion first. And so, first of all, we we went through the entire script. Celine, uh, myself, Grace Yoon, the production designer. We went through the whole script scene by scene and acted out. You know, Celine, like, just appointed us roles. I was Nora. Grace was his song, you know, Celine was Arthur, and we would read through these, read through the script and just talk about what it is we wanted to achieve. Um, so a lot of like our the things that we were we wanted to do in terms of the language of the film was built in, you know, during the prep stages. And knowing that we had to shoot it out of order, shoot New York first. And we, you know, because repetition was a big part of the imagery and a big part of the language we kind of had to know what it is we were going for, you know, for the second half of the film in order to try and find and look for a lot of the first Korean section images. And that was like proof to be a challenge in its own way. And New York is 
you know, New York is New York. New York is like an unforgiving place to shoot. It doesn't doesn't hold any punches, but we had an amazing crew. You know, a lot of the crew that I had worked with previously on previous projects. And we had an amazing line producer, Taylor Shung, who like made it possible for us to travel from Korea, from New York to Korea with a lot of our keys, including our second AC, you know, keeping the camera alive was a big thing and syncing up on the Korean end of things. Like it was just a completely different process of filmmaking in Korea than it was in New York. You know, like New York, you have to get permits for everything in union films. You know, you want to look left, look right. You have to get that cleared. Uh, you got to hold traffic, you know, cops rolling TCD, all that stuff. And in Korea, it's like you just haven't, you can't get any permits for anything. It's like you don't, that's not a thing. So you just have like an army of PAs and they just go and like essentially like lay themselves down in front of traffic to hold the cars. You get the shot. And then you have like a Formula One pit crew that pulls the track up, lets the cars through and puts it down before you can sip your coffee, you know? And it's like just like it was a really amazing thing to witness the, the different ways of working and both of them being, you know, super effective in in the process of, of working in these different places. Wow. Uh, I, I didn't know about the uh, no permit thing in Korea. So uh, and, and I feel like I want to talk about New York, too, next. So uh, let me let me just actually ask a question that might relate to both places. Um, I feel like, look, it's uh, if you're paying attention to the extras in the background, there's something wrong with your movie. But I, I, at various points, I really felt like these pe- were people in the environment, in the world, and it didn't seem like, you know, typical extras or people who were, who were planned or the background action. It felt so grounded in reality. It felt like there, there, it never, that illusion was never broken for me watching this movie, either in New York or in Korea. I feel like there's probably some credit that goes to the assistant directors because usually assistant directors end up handling background action and all that stuff. But were you ever out in places where you were literally just getting people, the the public out on the street? Is some of of that stuff that's going on or is it all constructed for, for the benefit of the camera? I'm mostly constructed for the benefit of the camera, you know, especially in New York. It's so, yeah, it's just like not possible to really shoot the way we were shooting in such a controlled way and have that sort of New York level of chaos in the background didn't really suit our style for this. And Korea was the same, was mostly the same way. You know, it was like, if you look around, there's not really like any huge crowd scenes or, you know, there's not like hundreds of extras running around. Um, It's all pretty sort of, it's all pretty contained to our frame. So all of that was you know, our, our New York assistant director, Ben, that just constructed a lot of these scenes with this with team. You, you hit some really, you know, big, beautiful Vista type of stuff, too, including like, you know, uh, the Statue of Liberty, Liberty Island and uh, and all that sort of stuff. So it's like, yeah, it, it felt to me like it was almost like out in the world, which is really incredible because that is not an aesthetic that usually gets to be uh, very polished and really pristine the, the way this movie is and very controlled with uh, these incredible tracking shots, these tracking shots that dolly for, uh, you know, considerable distances. Can, can you talk a little bit about the idea of carrying actors, you know, in sort of like a horizontal scroll for really like there's no I'm not saying there's no cuts, but there, like, there's a very deliberate pacing and very deliberate cutting that goes on. And these sort of like moments of, of travel and traversing, you know, and bits of the scenery and geography. How did the idea of camera movement come into this? 
Um, well, pretty early on, we were talking uh, in prep and we were trying to figure out how to translate time in a very simple, because we just, we knew that we wanted the film to look very natural and very simple. And it was like, well, how do we translate time? And we did that through, we spoke about a light and the elements, rain, light fading, coming, going, the clouds, uh, wind. And then we also spoke about uh, the movement of the camera through characters or also the movement of the camera externally from characters. And I remember like during, you know, one of our conversations, we were speaking about that final scene in the film and we were looking at what locations were available to us. And I had asked Celine just a very sort of innocuous question of what direction should they, you think they should walk? And she had to see her like light up. And she was like, in a very Celine fashion, she was like, well, they should walk right to left because that is into the past. And she, he should drop, she should drop him off in the past and then walk from left to right back into the future and up the stairs. And that was like that, like very sort of small and simple moment in our conversation led and informed the entire language of the film in terms of how we move the camera from left to right. And we did that with panning, with sliders, or we did that with like 150 foot of track and all based around what the characters were going through internally in their lives and the place in the film. Yeah, it's interesting. It definitely creates these these moments that call a little bit of attention to it. But it's also it, it's interesting because they also seem like moments of you know strain or contemplation or or movement. And the story kind of jumps around a little bit, you know, between different locations, different time periods, and and obviously a lot of that's being done with set dressing. But was there was there some way that you approached the visuals that you wanted to make seamless? Because at some point you're 24 years in the past, then you're 12 years in the past, then you're your modern day. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided that you wanted to handle the the time period shifts? Yeah, we we decided we did not want to call any attention to itself. Like that would have done a disservice to the film, uh, in in our opinion. Like it just needed to feel as authentic as possible and as real as possible. And so we didn't want to flex between childhood middle age, older, like all that, all that needed to feel like one thing. You know, I don't think when I think about my childhood or my adolescent years, I don't think in stocks of film, they just exist in my mind as a part of, you know, the aesthetic of the time period through the things I was interacting with, not through the lenses that I experienced it through, you know, so I think we just decided to just keep it very homogenous throughout the whole film. Uh, and, and mission accomplished. It really does. It really does feel a couple times where I was like, wait a second, are we, is this 12 years ago? Is this 24 years ago? And then I had to like, you know, I had to think for a second. And it's it's effective because it feels very uniform all the way through. What uh, what camera lenses did you use for this movie? We used uh, Panavision XL2 35 millimeter camera. We shot uh, three perf 500 Tugston 5219 stock. And, you know, we chose film because the whole film was going to, was going to be very natural in its approach. You wanted to have something that felt timeless in its canvas, in the sort of patina of the, of the image. Something that wasn't like conscious, but was more felt. And we tested, you know, different stocks and digital and film and um, ended up choosing 35 millimeter and tested a lot of lenses and ended up going with a mix of p-vintage ultra speed panavision lenses and mainly just stuck between like the 40 millimeter 
range, you know, like we didn't go any wider than a 30 and we did some pretty long lens stuff, but mainly just stuck around a 40 and just that felt authentic to us was that, that focal length. All right. Well, I'm kind of just blown away too, because, you know, uh, Celine's, uh, you know, first time director, the movie's nominated, if I buried the lead before for, for best picture. And, you know, not a lot of first time directors get such a, a nomination, like re- right out of the, the bat. It's very, very rare. And I know from personal experience and just from, you know, 30 years in this industry that the collaboration between DP and director for a first time director is so critical. It is so key. There is so much that the director has to rely on the DP because usually the DP has a lot more experience. The DP has gone through this a bunch of times. So really it's like there's a, a, a tremendous amount of success of a project that I think is not always obviously, you know, laid at the feet of the DP, uh, but you've got to, you know, kind of be the voice of reason and the, and the shoulder to, uh, you know, to cry on. You've got to be that, that person to make sure that, you know, you're, you're in charge of three departments of how everything is going and moving. So congratulations to you. I feel like, you know, you, you, uh, deserve some of that nomination as well too, because of just, you know, being able to finagle and make the, make this all work. Uh, I want to take a step back now, though, and talk about some other work that you've done. Uh, Small Acts is some of like my favorite hours of television of all time, and it's just so incredibly visual, frankly, to, to come in and uh, have that be your first big television sort of project out there and stuff with Steve McQueen and to do just knock it out of the park. It's like almost like five feature films in a way. I mean, I think they're, I think some of them are shorter, but it's like still it's like it's a lot. It's a lot in a I'm guessing a relatively short period of time. Can you talk about how the production of Small Axe comes together? Yeah, I mean, straight up off the bat, Steve was like, we're not making TV. These are films. So and I was like, OK, great, because I've never made TV. So there we go. <laughs> and the way that we would would do it was like we would prep one. Right. Which was which was mangrove, and we shot it in the sequence in which they were released, um, mm. and tried to shoot it in as much order as possible, uh, which is virtually always it's not really yeah, a, a thing really you can do. do. Yeah, but we 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 tried to. We had a super modest budget, and we would discuss one, scout it, shoot it. We would break for like a week, then we would bring up prep and we'd prep another one while at the same time introducing the one ahead of that one that we would so we would have start prepping with that and the art department was just like it was like a heavy art job because it was all period and they had to find all the locations and london's so different now you know so we went outside of london and had to scout and we couldn't like you know you couldn't sort of move the camera to the left or to the right because there was like a sainsbury's and you know a, a pub on the corner that was modern and so it was it was a lot of like the art department going ahead and finding these locations and us reviewing them while we were shooting one episode it was crazy but again like i didn't really know i hadn't really done much up until that point so i didn't really know that this wasn't like what people did you know so i was just like hell yeah let's let's do it and um i think the way that Steve had structured the show the way that we would shoot it really played into and this is what he's so great at was like playing the the crew like an orchestra and getting what he needed from his musicians based off of the emotional crescendo of what was happening so an example would be we shot mangrove first 
And it was a very intense experience because this is a real story with real people that were a part of the, the, the writing process of the film. They were interviewed and very much a period accurate story. We ended that shoot. And as a point of relief, they had structured Lover's Rock to be right after that. And we, you know, we shot that in like nine days, virtually had no time to prep it on my end. You know, our department had a house that they they put together. But then we kind of went straight into Lover's Rock. And it was this release that came from all of our pent-up-ness on Mangrove and a celebration. And knowing that where we were going from there into red, white, and blue, we, we knew that we just had to take this moment. We, had, we couldn't take this moment for granted. And so we put a lot of that energy came into it. And so it was just like, it was stuff like that. Like, like Love is Rock is a film that I can't, could never recreate. Like I couldn't go through the shot list and be like, well, we could recreate this because it wasn't any of that. It was just spiritual, you know? And I kind of like, just, we just released ourselves to that experience. So that was a really like, it was structured in a way that was very smart to get the best out of everybody. Um, be serious when we needed to be serious and be light when we needed to be light, you know. I, I got to say, you, you say it, it's light. And so maybe it was a slightly more uh, improvisational from your side, but still you made a, you made another, you know, hour of television. You made another like, you know, very visually interesting story that kind of like follows around. And it's true. There is a real, you know, there's a real hard right turn that sort of takes place after Lover's Rock with the with the rest of the series. Uh, and I think that it it is it's kind of like this this moment of pause. You know, it's this moment of pause. It doesn't almost feel like it fits with everything else other than it does fit with everything else, which is like it's kind of like this this moment. It doesn't quite have the same vibe. Again, I mean, and in comparing with past lives, there's a there's a naturalistic quality. I feel like you're bringing to the table that. I, I don't necessarily see from a lot of DPs, your stuff does not feel lit. And I don't know if that comes from uh, soft, you know, base level exposures or ambient light uh, or reflectors or, or what, like, you know, the technical aspect of how you, it is that you achieve it. But there's so much of it that feels contrasty and feels naturalistic. And you're also working in films. So that means you don't get all the benefits of like, you know, the high ISOs that so much of the new digital technology has. So can you break down just sort of like your philosophy for me like and and there there are very different looks between between each of those projects in small acts i would say the unifying aspect about it is though it's you and the unifying aspect is it's naturalistic and contrasty what's your philosophy for this how, how are you approaching small acts as sort of like a, an example of how you like to light things or how like you you want to work yeah <laughs> oh man yeah i think I'm always after authenticity, you know, and I'm always after something that if it feels lit, then I just, I don't know. I just feel like I failed. You know what I mean? That's just the thing about cinema that excites me. It's like the naturalistic, authentic window into the human behavior that you're witnessing. Right. So I just knew, I knew going into small acts that like, I would, I just would want to try and do that throughout the whole series, because that's just something that I will always want to do and trusted that the visuals would be unified by that sort of process that I'm constantly going to be working on in my life. And then like approach each film as its own film, you know, as its own story in a vacuum and spoke about, you know, why certain things, what the language was of 
why like mangrove needed to be shot in a two three one aspect ratio it was an ensemble film that has a lot of the power of community in one frame was something that needed to be shown you know like half of the film is the mangrove nine and the dock and how to how to do that in a way that felt powerful and so that's how we settled on the aspect ratio we know that we wanted to to, to steve always said that like he wanted this to be something that his mom could watch on Sundays at the BBC, you know, something that was never possible in on British television before, just because of the systemic roadblocks. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was kind of paying homage to that gap in, in cinema history in the, in the, in the UK. And so like, you know, film became a natural part of that conversation and how to, how to show those textures authentically. So we kind of just went through it script by script, moment by moment and spoke about it and built the language like you would any film. Lover's Rock was a similar process where it was like, we knew we wanted to tell this story through color. Right. And we told this story through the sort of changing of color. Like if you notice throughout the party, the, the colors change in every it's broken down by dance sequence almost. Right. And each dance sequence has a very sort of specific color palette. Um, that's just slightly different, but depending on what was happening in the story. So we had like, you know, we rigged the whole ceiling with fully RGB dimmable and changeable, color changeable lights and would have somebody on a, on an iPad just changing the colors based off of what was happening emotionally in the scene. And I would have like a, the mic on and we would be like up with the this color or down with that color. And, you know, as the camera panned around, it was it was very much like a, it was like jazz and it was like a dance in terms of like communicating what needed to happen on a color level versus what was happening on a camera level and yeah and so we just kind of went through each script like that and just found what was the thing that was unique about the script and what we wanted to do and approached it that way and didn't really think about it as a whole you know it's like how are these things all going to fit together it's like no they're going to fit together because the through line is the west indian community during these time periods and that's the, the unifying story and you know i think i think you encapsulated it really well there when you mentioned why because it's like yeah i think that every dp every good dp is always asking themselves why why is this happening what what what's going on and that's not a uh that's not an obvious question sometimes when you've got all this other stuff going on to ask to keep going that level it's like why is this happening why is this happening why is this happening why you know how many levels down do you have to go to then get to the truth of what it is you're trying to create. Yeah, because in, in order to break the rules, you need to you need to know why you're creating them in the first place. I've been on some projects where like we just did not know why. For whatever reason, that question wasn't asked enough. It wasn't interrogated and it just wasn't I just evident as to what a mess it was, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, good warning to all you uh, young directors out there or writers or producers. Uh, you should be prepared for your DP to ask you why. <laughs> because, you know, why Why is one of those really important things. If you want good results, you you got you to gotta ask the questions of why sometimes so that you know how to interpret what's on the page, how to interpret what, what's going on. I, I think that... Uh, Every DP out there should always kind of be be going through. It should be, you know, it's not just what's my motivation for an actor or what's this motivation for a light. It's kind of like, why is all of this stuff happening or why is any of this happening and how do you you work back from there? And anyway. Uh, and it's totally OK for, for the director not to know why. For sure. Either. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You can figure it out together. You know, but, that's but, what, you know. Asking the question is probably going to happen regardless, even if they don't yeah, know. Yeah, totally. Probably, probably Asking the question is super important. 
you know. Xavier, this, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I really appreciate you uh, you coming here and talking about all this stuff. This has been so much fun for me. Uh, again, if you haven't seen Small Acts or if you haven't seen Past Lives, go out and see these things. These things are great. Before I tell our, before I say goodbye, is there a place online that people can find you? Do you do an Instagram? Do you do any of those things? Is if someone wants to reach out to you, is do you do you do social media of any sort? I don't. I don't do so. I mean, like, I just had to get rid of the social media thing just because it was insidious to my daily lifestyle. And um, so I'm not on the social. I'm also really bad at replying to emails. So best way to get a hold of me is like through my agent or something or like through a friend of a friend. <laughs> All right. Xavier uh, Kirshner, thanks so much for being on the show. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.